Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. All right, if you've ever said that your dog's issues were due to them being a baby dog, then this episode is for you. Baby dog is a phrase that gets tossed around a lot in agility circles. People talk about their baby dog having baby dog problems. What they mean is that their dog is young and inexperienced, and so that stupid thing they did in the ring is due to them being young and inexperienced. And that could totally be true young dogs often lack the emotional maturity or the self-regulation to be in that environment. But I'm going to pause here and suggest that perhaps if they lack the emotional maturity, if they lack the self-regulation to do the stuff that you think they know how to do in a certain environment, then perhaps you shouldn't ask them to do that in that environment. Perhaps it is your job to fill in the gap with those skills. I was talking about this with my agility coach, Megan Foster, the other day, and she said, dogs don't grow into skills. We teach them skills. And that's exactly right. So a dog does not mature into not having zoomies in the ring. A dog does not mature into running past the last jump and straight to the reinforcer. A dog does not mature into breaking its start line stay, or holding its start line stay, rather. A dog does not mature into keeping bars up. And in a more real world example, dogs don't mature into loose leash walking. They don't mature into downstays. They don't mature into not jumping on guests when guests walk in the door. They don't mature into skills. So it's our job to step in and to recognize that maturity helps a lot of stuff. Dogs that are two and a half, three years old suddenly seem to understand a lot of stuff that we've been trying to teach them their whole lives. And that is true. Adolescent dogs have a lot of the same struggles that adolescent people have. Their brains are not actually fully developed and they can't be expected to control themselves on the level that we can expect an adult. That's very true. And also, it is our responsibility to teach them all of the skills that they need while we allow maturity to also take its time. So these skills include all of your sports skills, start line stays, contact behaviors, jumping, weave pulls, responding to handling cues. If we're talking about obedience, retrieves, healing, attention, all of that stuff is our job to train. Nobody's going to mature into that stuff. And I don't hear as much about this in sports other than agility. I hear mostly about it in agility, that people excuse a lot of problems due to a dog's age or lack of experience. In fact, it's our job to teach them the skills that they are not going to simply grow into on their own. And be really realistic with ourselves about what those skills are and what skills the dog is lacking and whether or not the dog will require more maturity 
to actually engage those skills in certain environments. So an example might be when Felix was a young dog, Felix is my seven-year-old border collie. When Felix was a young dog, he had a very hard time with other dogs running. So he wanted to stare at them or chase them very normal thing for especially a young border collie or a border collie of any age to want to do is to stare at or chase something that is fast moving and that does include other dogs and I have news for everybody there's a lot of fast moving dogs and dog agility and so Felix had also had a hard time just walking into an agility trial there were dogs running there were you know there were noises it was chaotic basically agility trials are really just major sensory overload and he experienced that sensory overload and he would just leave brain matter on the wall if I tried to walk him into one of those environments and so he needed both the emotional maturity to show up and self-regulation to show up of an adult dog and the skills that I taught him to be able to cope with the agility environment so he did not mature out of any of those problems but I did not enter him in trials until he was capable of responding to me in a normal way. So responding to cues with a normal latency, taking reinforcement normally. When he could do those things within the trial environment, then I started to experiment with trialing him. And I didn't do it until then. And he didn't start trialing in earnest until he was about three years old. And that's very, very late according to the vast majority of the people in the sport. It was the time that he needed to both learn those skills and control himself. So both of those things were happening all the time. He needed to have an adult fully formed brain in order to access his skills in that environment. And I needed to teach him those skills. And when I tell you that the dog can do a downstay next to me, ringside without being constantly fed at an agility trial before and after his run that's not something he matured into that's something i taught him how to do but he couldn't have done it as a super young dog no matter how good my training was and so that's the lesson that i wish to impart is that yes maturity helps a lot of the behaviors that you're trying to teach and also maturity won't teach those behaviors for you So if you feel like some of what your dog is experiencing in trials is about them being a baby, that might be true. But think really hard about what the actual skills are that the dog is lacking and make a plan to train them, to train those skills. Because it will take you time to train those skills and the passage of time happens to be how maturity gets here. So then you're addressing your problem from both directions and you will hopefully arrive where you'd like to arrive in a more reasonable time frame than if you just waited for the dog to grow up. All right, and I've got a few Patreon questions for you. This one comes from Lauren, who writes, my question is about radius work. I have a 13-month-old male intact golden retriever who is pretty good off-leash. When he hit teenage land, his recall became a little less consistent, but still pretty good. He always gets paid after a recall. What is most concerning is that his radius relative to me has grown outside of my comfort zone. I try not to recall him unless I have to. These are his decompression walks after all, but he gets so far away, up 200 to 300 yards at times, that I need to recall him. And if I don't recall him, he will come back on his own, but I'd prefer he not get that far away from me before he decides to auto-check in. 
do you have any tips to encourage him to stay within a smaller radius while still letting this stay his decompression time? It seems counterintuitive to me that he should have to keep his brain on me to stay close while turning his brain off to decompress, but this is becoming a safety issue. So Lauren, I 100% need my dogs to keep their brain on me while they decompress if they're going to be off leash because this is how they're going to be safe. So they do really need to be trained to stay close to you. And I don't want you to worry about the dog losing out on decompression time because they're being trained to stay close. You've trained a recall and you've used reinforcement to do so, positive reinforcement to do so. And that tells me that you're familiar enough with what reinforcers are gonna be worthwhile to this dog out in the world that you can also shape a tighter radius. What that means is that you are going to be paying for a lot of check-ins and you're going to be paying for them really really big so you are probably going to use a much higher value reinforcer than you would expect to for check-ins like you might give kibble for check-ins and steak for a recall i want you to give something equally great for check-ins i want you to give steak for check-ins and then have something surprising like goat cheese or something for the recall when you have to use it the key to not needing to recall because i agree i don't want to recall them is them keeping a tight radius so i focus a lot of my efforts on shaping that tight radius with very high value food if i need to up front so that they never get that far away also don't let him get that far away call him if he's reaching 50 yards that's too far away and if his radius remains really too huge i would be looking at what other antecedents i can alter can i walk him in different places that are less interesting does a long line help him to offer more check-ins does another dog who's really smart about staying close help him to offer more check-ins think about other ways that you can manipulate the environment so that he checks in with you more reward his check-ins really really heavily so that you have to recall him less and keep working on it and keep an eye on that radius Next one comes from Janine who writes, what to do when the anxiety causing antecedent can't be changed? My no longer feral, but still very spooky two-year-old rescue border collie hates going through thresholds. The narrower, the worse. Uh, Being a border collie, she can be both fearful and have bad cases of FOMO. So that's kind of slaying for fear of missing out. So usually that means frustration about being apart from the action. Just as an aside, Janine goes on to say, whenever I leave the house with other dogs, Her tendency is to speed through any doorway in a dead run. Almost all the time we leave the house by the back door, which goes into the yard, but I can't really widen the doorways in my house or elsewhere. So we are training around the thing because if she is ever gonna go places, she will encounter doorways. My ideas include sticking her in her crate and watching other dogs go in and out, shaping the approach to the glass door, et cetera, et cetera. So something something will work and I have the luxury of having all the time she needs though the FOMO is getting worse. In this instance, I can come up with plans, but do you have better ideas? So Janine, I would love to give you a more well-rounded plan than this, because it sounds like you actually have a lot going on. You've got the threshold, but you've also got the FOMO, and that is a problem that does need to be addressed. So just for the threshold, I would be taking the drama out of the threshold. So I would be guiding the dog by a collar or a short leash through the threshold, and when she is calm, I would unclip the leash and let her go. I would not have her doing that like blast through super fast like that would that just wouldn't be allowed she would be on a leash she would walk slowly then I would let her go when she is calm and I also wouldn't walk her through the threshold if she was panicky so if I'm standing on one side of it and she's like coming out of her skin really nervous about it and doesn't want to do it I would just wait for her to calm down 
and then I'd take that one step and it would just be one step because I wouldn't be far from the threshold through the threshold and then I'd wait for her to calm down again and I'd let her leash off so I wouldn't try to quote unquote train I would manage it this way and stop letting her blast through doors and see what that does for you Next one comes from Erin, who writes, do you have any advice for helping shape a more appropriate greeting behavior for dogs who come in hot when meeting new dogs? My Sheltie is really friendly and mostly appropriate with new dogs, except for the initial, oh my God, a new friend moment when she runs to greet them. This only happens in situations where the expectation is that the dogs will meet slash the greetings are unavoidable. I've considered using a long line to hold her back, but worry leash tension will amp her up, maybe recalling her and having her heel up until we're only a few feet away but I would love to hear your take. So Aaron, go search back through Patreon. I shared a bunch of videos of self-regulated greetings with other dogs, and I would actually go through that training process with her to teach her that she only gets to access another dog if she is calm. And then figure out how you can implement that in these circumstances. Do you need to put her on a leash and make sure that she's calm in order to get to say hi? You know, those kinds of things. Because if the other dogs that you're meeting are not gonna shape this behavior for you, which is always my preference, and they probably won't, that's pretty hit or miss, you're gonna have to shape it yourself and you might have to use a leash. I wouldn't just stand back with her like bouncing against a, a collar, like getting really excited about with that leash tension. No, I wouldn't do that. But I would have a leash on her so that you can allow her to say hi when she calms down. And if she starts to amp up, you can remove her from the situation again. And like I said, there are videos um, in Patreon. If you search for self-regulation, you should find them. Next one comes from Francie, who writes, when creating an enriched environment for Dog Park TV, will any type of enrichment work? I think I remember you talking about most about sniffing, but would a stuffed Kong or bully sick have the same effect, or does this depend on the dog? So remember that enrichment is defined by its outcomes, not actually what it is. So outcome goal is what matters here. If lying down and chewing near the dog park achieves the same long-term effects, as sniffing near the dog park, foraging near the dog park, then absolutely yes, that will totally work. I usually do all of it, all of the above. I teach them to lie down and chew. I do a whole lot of you're just gonna lay here and chew on something in my behavior work. You'd be amazed how many behavior problems I like to address by, guess what, you're lying down and you're chewing. <laughs> um, and then a lot of other behavior problems that I addressed by throwing a bunch of kibble in the grass and having the dog snuffle through the grass. So um, the answer is yes. You can try as many different forms of quote-unquote enrichment as you would like for the dog that you're working with. All right, this one comes from Ashlyn, who writes, I'd like to know what the appropriate approach would be to a dog that won't release from a start line or a sit-stay. My two-year-old Aussie has been doing this since he was a puppy, and it happens even when he's super excited about the job. So Ashlyn, I want to know how you know the dog's excited about the job, number one, because if the dog will not release and they know that releasing buys them the job, then by definition, the job is punishing the release. So very short answer, because I don't know near enough about what's going on here to give you a real one, is that I would stop doing sit stays. Like I'd throw a cookie back and run. I would do a running start for everything. And then the other part of the answer is I would train my release better. So I would have the dog in a sit stay and I would train the release just like any other cue. And I have an episode on release cues. And I would see if that didn't address the problem for you. Next one's from Suzanne, who writes, I'd like to hear your thoughts on modern day proofing of behaviors. I have heard a lot of old school trainers and competitors talk about intimidation tactics, basically 
staring at the dog from some weird angle in the weaves, putting scary stuff on course for the dog to work through, etc., and calling it proofing. Where do you stand on your practices as dog training seems to have evolved from these intimidation tactics to something more progressive? So, of course, I try not to do anything unpleasant to dogs. I had a whole episode on proofing with Chelsea Protula Pack, so search for that one and go back and give that a listen. I think of proofing in this way. Hannah Brannigan defined it as fluency enhancement, and I love that. So for me, proofing is just making stuff different every time I do it, rather than making stuff hard or scary or intimidating. And the goal for me with proofing is always to reinforce, not to punish. And that's the big change for me from my history of dog training is that I learned that proofing was about punishing, was about correcting the dog for getting it wrong. And today, I don't want the dog to ever get it wrong. I introduce proofing elements, meaning I'm enhancing the fluency by changing variables in such a way that I think the dog's gonna get it right so that I can reinforce. And that's it for this week. Thanks everybody. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. You might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.